Welcome to Discover Library and Archives Canada, your history, your documentary heritage. I'm your host, Jose Arnold. Join us as we showcase treasures from our vaults, guide you through our many services, and introduce you to the people who acquire, safeguard, and make known Canada's documentary heritage. Near the Alaskan border with Canada, nestled along the Klondike River in the Yukon, sits the Klondike region. On August 16, 1896, local miners discovered gold there. When news reached the United States and southern Canada the following year, it triggered a stampede of prospectors, forever changing the landscape of the Northwest and of North America. The gold was discovered on Rabbit Creek and lay within the traditional territory of the Han people, who had hunted, fished, and trapped along the Yukon River for thousands of years. Many of today's Trondic Wichin, or people of the river, are descendants of the Han-speaking people. of the Klondike Gold Rush, more than 30,000 individuals hand-mined for gold in the Rich Creeks. And from 1896 to 1899, over $29 million in gold was extracted from the ground around Dawson City. The excitement quickly petered out after the turn of the century, and one by one, miners sold out to large companies, which bought up individual claims. One of these companies, the Yukon Consolidated Gold Corporation, operated in the Klondike region between 1923 and 1966. The company had a large presence in the area, with hundreds of employees and amassed a huge collection of valuable geological data, including maps and technical drawings. at the Yukon Geological Survey. Oh, and uh, I'm Sydney Van Loon, and I'm a plaster geology technician with the Yukon Geological Survey, and we are based here in Whitehorse, Yukon. Yukon Geological Survey geologists Sydney Van Loon and Jeff Bond have been traveling from their home base in Whitehorse to Ottawa since 2013, digitizing hundreds of these geological maps of the Klondike region at Library and Archives Canada. Since the information provided in the maps is extremely detailed and valuable to geologists and historians, and the few corporations still active in the gold industry, they have been making the information available online. The collection of the Yukon Consolidated Gold Corporation at LAC holds over 1,400 maps and over 400 technical drawings of the Klondike region. Before we start to talk to Jeff and Sydney, 
we highly recommend that you go to our Flickr gallery. We have many great photos there from our collection here at LAC, and several pertain to the topics we'll be covering in today's episode. You can access the link to the Flickr album in the show notes on the podcast page for this episode. Check it out. We first asked if Jeff and Sydney could tell us about the Klondike region's geological background. How did all this gold end up there? Uh, the Klondike is uh, located in, in west-central Yukon, and it's, uh, it's an area that's underlain by rocks that are of Permian age. Those are rocks that are about 250 to 300 million years old, and they consist of uh, volcanic rocks, uh, sedimentary rocks, and also some intrusive sort of granites and things like that. It's a, meta, it's a metamorphosed uh, terrain, so that means there's been you know, mountain building that's gone on, the rocks have been, you know, exposed to uh, heat and pressure. And in that process, there has been uh, veins of quartz that have been shot through the rocks. And that, that veining process or that, that component of the geology occurred roughly around 160 million years old. And that, that, that mineralization event essentially is the event that brings the gold into and, and concentrates the gold, you know, associated with the quartz veins. And, uh, and so we're, we're talking about, you know, fairly old rocks uh, in terms of the, the Cordillera and the mountain belts here. They, um, the, the veins are much younger than the actual rocks. And then you have really since that period of time, you've had relative stability in the landscape, you had you had mountain building, and then once the mountain building events, I mean, really subsided, you really had a long period of erosion occurring. And so, once the gold was in place into the quartz veins, um, you have weathering processes occurring in this mountain mountainous area that really liberated the gold from the quartz veins and 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 released it into the stream valleys. And so that process has been going on for you know roughly probably more than a hundred million years, and uh, you know and with that amount of time, that amount of erosion, you can build up gold in the valley bottoms, and that's that's the process that occurred in the, in the Klondike. So what we see in the in the Klondike, if you were to visit that region today, is a region that is unglaciated, which is unique in Canada. So it's an area that was never uh, glaciated by the ice sheets like most of the rest of the country. Um, it escaped the glaciations because of that, this particular area of northwestern Canada is quite dry, and the ice sheets never reached, reached the region. So, so the gold deposits were not buried or eroded under you know, thick deposits of, of glacial sediment. And so when you visit the Klondike, uh, it, it has a different look to it in terms of the landscapes that we might be used to. In, in, in other places in the Yukon, the, the valleys are quite narrow. Um, there's, uh, there's, you know, uh, there's, there's, there's not a lot of sediment sort of on the landscape in a way. So it's a, it's a landscape that's dominated by river erosion, stream erosion, and really gravitational sort of processes like landslides and things like that. And so roughly about well, 2.8 million years ago, we have the first glaciation into the area. Um, it doesn't reach the Klondike, as I mentioned, but it comes into the area. And what it does in, in terms of the big picture in the Yukon is it, is it diverts and reverses the Yukon River. The Yukon River used to be a south-flowing river prior to the first glaciation. 
at that point in time, it reverses the river, uh, blocks it, and reverses it to the north, into the into uh, uh, eastern Alaska. And in that process, all of the river valleys that are connected to the Yukon River drop in, in, in what's called the base level. They, they erode to a lower level um, after that period of time. And that's why we have these high-level gravels left in the Klondike. They are abandoned in this process of erosion. And what's important about that particular event and that process of erosion is you concentrate all of the gold that was in the white channel gravels. These are very thick deposits of gravel that are you know, upwards of 30-plus meters thick. And, and the gold within those older gravels, you concentrate that down into your modern floodplain when you have this erosional event. And it's all triggered by the reversal of the Yukon River, really. And so when you concentrate that volume of gold that's in the white channel gravel into the valley bottoms, you really you, you produce a highly economic uh, gold deposit in, in, in the valley bottoms. So there's a, the clinic is really characterized by sort of a long history of, of events that have led to uh, the, 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 the really the Klondike Klondike Gold Rush and the current situation where you had you know very concentrated gold deposits in, in the stream gravels itself and some of some of the highest concentrations that have been found in in uh, in North America. Did you know that the name Klondike evolved from the First Nations word Trondek, which means hammerstone water? Early gold seekers found it difficult to pronounce the First Nations word, so Klondike was the result of this poor pronunciation. By the way, we'd like to give a big shout-out to Kylie Van Avery. She's a Trondek Wichin citizen and a heritage interpreter at Dano Jajo Cultural Center in Dawson City, Yukon. Kylie provided us with a solid understanding of the impact that the Klondike gold rush had on First Nations peoples in the area, and on their ancestral rights to the land. Thanks, Kylie. How did the Klondike Gold Rush get started? How was the gold discovered? Jeff tells us. Uh, so prospecting in the Klondike, you know, really began, well, in the Yukon in general, uh, prospecting began in the 1880s. To get into the Yukon in those early days, you would you would have sailed up the uh, the coast from you know, British Columbia or the lower 48, Seattle, San Francisco. You would have sailed up the coast, and you would have stopped at a at a place called uh, Dai. Dai was a launching place where the local Chilkat controlled a mountain path called the Chilkut Pass. The Chilkut Pass was a 53-kilometer-long mountain pass stretching from the ghost town of Dai, Alaska to Lake Bennett, British Columbia. First crossed by Chilkut Tlingit traders and later by the Klondike Gold Rush Stampeders, as they were called, the trail crossed the international boundary between the United States and Canada. The pass was a major trading route and was also used by the early prospectors in the 1880s to gain access into the interior beyond the coastal mountains. This would have brought people into the interior of Yukon and given them access to the river systems that drained into the Yukon River itself. The Chilkut Pass was an important milestone that travelers had to conquer in order to reach the Klondike. The trail was one of only three passes in southeast Alaska that could be crossed year-round. 
It was understood by those using the trail that Tlingit and Tagish packers would be hired to move expedition gear. The pass is now managed cooperatively by Parks Canada and the U.S. National Park Service. And so the, the prospecting began in the 1880s, and then it really led, people were kind of zoning in and getting closer and closer to the Klondike uh, area itself uh, just prior to, to, to the discovery. And so you have a few different players that are important in the Klondike Gold Rush, uh, or the Klondike uh, Gold Discovery, and that is uh, the, the main, one of the main prospectors was a fellow named Robert Henderson from uh, Nova Scotia, who was very active in prospecting in the Klondike area just prior to, to the discovery on Bonanza Creek. And he really alerted George Carmack, Skookum Jim, Tagish Charlie, and Kate Carmack uh, about the sort of the potential of the area. They, those, those four folks, uh, George Carmack, Skookum Jim, Tagish Charlie, and Kate Carmack, George's wife, were fishing at the mouth of the Klondike River, a very popular fishing location for the local First Nation, the Trondequitchen First Nation. Um, there was a, 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 an amazing salmon run, apparently, at the Klondike River back in those days. And they were also prospecting on the side. Um, they had a conversation with Robert Henderson on at the mouth of the Klondike River in, eight, in August of 1896 or July of 1896 about uh, the potential of a creek called Gold Bottom Creek. And so they went uh, over to visit Robert on his claims on Gold Bottom Creek. And in the process of going to Gold Bottom Creek, they hiked up a creek called Rabbit Creek. And they did a little bit of gold panning on the way. They went over the uh, divide into Gold Bottom, spent some time with Robert there, and then returned to uh, their fishing camp at the mouth of the Klondike River. On their way back to the fishing camp, they they shot a moose for supplies in Rabbit Creek. They followed the same route back that they came up, and they decided to do a little bit more prospecting. Well, the location where they shot the moose turned out to be an exceptional place to actually dip your pan in the creek or pan some gravels on the side of the creek. It turned out that the bedrock level was quite high in the creek, which meant that the gold that sits on the bedrock contact between the gravel and the, and the bedrock uh, was quite close to surface, and they managed to get a really what was a true sample of the pay streak there. Pay streak is a term that refers to profitable pockets of minerals, in this instance, gold, concentrated at or near the bedrock. And they got an exceptional gold pan and made the discovery called the uh, Creek Bonanza Creek and went down to record their claims uh, at the local mining recorder office, which was located in a in a uh, town called Forty Mile, which was just downriver from the mouth of the Klondike River uh, on the Yukon, and so uh, they were pretty pretty happy about that. Obviously, they went down to Forty Mile. There was a bunch of miners down there that they told about their discovery on on Rabbit Creek, now known as Bonanza Creek, and that led to sort of the initial rush. So this was in August of 1896. Uh, the gold was discovered August 16, 1896, uh, by Skookum Jim, who is a First Nation from the Carcross Tagish First Nation, which is closer to Whitehorse here. Um, and his his relatives were, were part of that uh, prospecting uh, party and fishing party as well, uh, Kate Carmack and uh, Tagish Charlie. 
Relatives Quiche and Ka'aguks, known also as Kukum Jim and Tagish Charlie, were both Tagish First Nation members. George Carmack had married into the family by wedding Skokum Jim's sister, Shaw Tla'a, also known as Kate. As Jeff mentioned, the gold discovery was made on Rabbit Creek, a small tributary of the Klondike River. It was soon renamed Bonanza Creek, a name that became world famous. Bonanza Creek is on Trondek, which in traditional territory. So they recorded their, they each recorded their claim at the discovery site. Uh, at 40 Mile, they told uh, the other miners about it down there, the prospectors, and that launched a you know, the initial rush, really, by local people that were in the area at the time. So this is all happening in the fall of 1896, and that brings in sort of your first you know, few hundred people into the drainage of Bonanza Creek. Uh, they start discovering all these other creeks that are sort of in the area as well at that time, and uh, but really, they're focused on Bonanza Creek and a, an important tributary uh, called El Dorado Creek. And so, news of the strike doesn't get out to the south until the spring of 1897, because there's no boats going, very few boats going back and forth up the Yukon River at that time. And really, what what happens in that first winter of 1896 is all these new miners, all these new claim holders on Bonanza Creek are sinking shafts in the creek. And that is digging a hole down to the bedrock contact between the gravel and the bedrock, really down to the base of your gravel unit, and, and testing the ground to see how much gold is in the gravel. And so they can do this kind of work in the winter. You basically light a fire. The ground's frozen. There's permafrost there. But you light a fire on the ground, you let the fire die out, and then you thought you it thawed some of the ground. You dig out your hole, and then you light another fire, and you continue down through the permafrost and gravel um, until you get to the bedrock contact. And they did this throughout the winter. How deep were these holes? We're talking about 20 feet, roughly. It would be sort of anywhere from 10 to 20 feet uh, would be a typical shaft, wouldn't you say, yeah. Sydney? Yeah. That. Yeah, and at that time, uh, very difficult digging though because the ground is frozen, the gravels are frozen. So, um, you know, that, but they were used to that in the area. And generally, the first the first few miners there were were already exposed to that sort of hardship. And so they they you know really really kind of got a good sense of what was there that first winter. They brought up a bunch of pater from the from the, from these shafts. And, and that was that, that gravel was washed and the gold was separated from the gravel in the spring when the thaw, first thaw occurs in the spring of 1897. And that's when they really realize how much gold is in you, you know some of these uh, in Bonanza Creek and Eldorado Creek and it was it was substantial. And so the first gold gets hauled out of, of the Klondike in on the first ship that sail back down to Seattle, San Francisco in, in the spring, uh, probably June or so of 1897. And that really triggers um, the news and uh, um, the first stage of the, sort of the bigger gold rush. So, you know, the, the, the whole region... By early 1897, the Trondek Wichin had moved away from Trondek to a traditional camp downriver called Moosehide. Although the gold rush brought new economic opportunities for the territory's First Nations people, 
It also created social and cultural upheaval. Han leader Chief Isaac welcomed the Stampeders, but he never failed to remind them that they prospered at the expense of the original inhabitants by driving away their game and taking over their land. For discovering the gold and starting the Klondike Gold Rush, Tagish Charlie, George Carmack, Skookum Jim, and Robert Henderson were all inducted into the Prospector's Hall of Fame in 1988 and the Canadian Mining Hall of Fame in 1999. Their names are also engraved in the base of the Prospector statue that stands watch over downtown Whitehorse at Main Street and 3rd Avenue. the population like in the Klondike region prior to the beginning of the gold rush? What happened after the news got out? Jeff and Sydney tell us. The whole region goes from being a few hundred people in the creek uh, to about 30,000 people in the area by, by later in the summer of 1897. And it takes, of course, people a long time to get there. Um, not only do they need, I mean, Really, by the time they're finding out about it, it's probably July of 1897. It's getting into the newspapers. Uh, it takes people a while to get their gear together and get up over the, you know, get on a boat, get up over the Chilkoot Pass, sail down the Yukon River system all the way to Dawson. I mean, they're not getting there really till probably the fall, late summer of 1897. When it's yeah, and I think that the population kind of really in the spring of 1898 when the yeah. population was roughly 30,000 people so that was probably the most industrious we would say yeah, uh, mining season yeah for the early stage of the gold rush so Dawson um, the maximum population according to the statistics of Dawson would be 40,000 people so a pretty substantial community kind of grew fairly quickly in that area from the 500 or so people that would initially been there when news reached the outside world, the Klondike Gold Rush began. The town of Dawson City sprang up practically overnight. Dubbed the Paris of the North, Dawson City became the largest city west of Winnipeg and north of Seattle, with some estimates putting the population at 50,000. Dance and gambling halls, bars, brothels, restaurants and supply stores all made fortunes mining the miners. Forty Mile, once the region's principal community, was virtually abandoned. The gold rush changed the landscape of the Northwest and North America forever, with transportation to the West and North vastly overhauled to sustain the stampede of prospectors. Towns such as Victoria, Vancouver and Edmonton owe much of their development to the Klondike Gold Rush. asked Sydney how the gold rush evolved into corporate mining. Um, so, yeah, initially, the, the gold rush, things were pretty um, basic in terms of hand mining and panning along the creeks. 
Um, and as Jeff already touched on, you know, there was uh, shafting, so people going through the gravel and overburdening gravel depth to the bedrock contact. Um, and with that came hydraulic operations. So there was um, the method of using large kind of water canyons to basically saw uh, the frozen muck permafrost above the gravel. So that was excavated, which allowed the gravel to kind of be washed down and just liberate it from the bank. So there was fairly large hydraulic operations was sort of the next step for mining. And uh, after that, uh, fairly quickly, dredging operations came in. Um, so yeah, the days of the individual hand miner was fairly short-lived in the Klondike. And uh, this is, uh, I guess, what we'll spend the rest of this interview sort of talking about was that transition to the dredging. We'll be discussing more about dredging soon, what it is and how it works. But first, we wanted to know how long from the initial discovery of the gold in 1896 until corporate mining using hydraulics and machinery came into play. Well, there was a bit of overlap for sure. So the initial sort of hand mining efforts probably peak in 1901, 1902, something like that, four or five years after the gold rush. So your, your, your peak production of gold uh, from Dawson City and the rich creeks like El Dorado and Bonanza by hand methods, um, I believe the highest production totals are from the, around the year 1900 and 1901, where you have over a million ounces mined by hand. And, and so that really, the, 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 the transition to corporate sort of uh, hydraulic mining starts to occur shortly after that period of time, I'd say around 1905, 1910, you really start getting uh, more of a sort of a company feel to the ground. You still have individual miners around, and you always kind of did, but they really start, the, the really good ground, the really rich paying ground gets uh, sold after that initial take is, is the initial extraction of gold is taken. <clears throat> There's more left. They don't get it all. Um, and then they start to sell out their claims. The, 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 and, uh, sort of the first round of claim holders start to sell out to, to people that are sort of accumulating ground or starting to build sort of larger blocks of ground. Um, and then you start to see the hydraulic concessions uh, released as well, which is uh, a little bit of a more of a complicated story in terms of sort of the politics of the Klondike, but there is, there is, a, there is overlap between the initial hand miners and the hydraulic miners for sure, but it's, it's part of the transition towards dredging. It was in the early 1900s that two large companies moved into the Klondike, the Canadian Klondike Mining Company and the Yukon Gold Company. The Canadian Klondike Mining Company built and operated the first dredge on Bonanza Creek in 1905. So just what is dredging? Yeah, so uh, for very basically, a dredge is an apparatus used for digging up gravel underwater by scooping. So what it does, I mean, it's fairly simple, and it, 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 it's a, yeah, a barge <laughs> that sits on its own pond, and it digs up gravel from the bottom of, in this case, in a stream, and uh, it has a bucket line, so these buckets turn, turn around the chain and sort of uh, and dig up, take a scoop of that bottom every time a new bucket kind of makes contact with that gravel. And so that, and that bucket line is then drawn up to this, this dredge, and on the dredge there's a big cylinder, um, which is called a trommel. And so this trommel is spinning on this floating dredge, 
and it has a screen, and as the gravel gets, you know, put into the front of this big trommel, spinning trommel, it gets washed with water, and uh, through that process, using gravity and water, the, the gravel, the finer components of the gravel get washed through a screen, you know, a typical three-quarter inch screen or something, so any finer particles fall through the screen. Once that, and like once all the material has been moved through the trommel, it is washed, and the larger, so it's washed pretty clean to wash out these smaller fragments, and these larger components of the gravel is then put on a conveyor behind the dredge and stacked uh, behind it, and the dredge just keeps moving forward, chewing through, and processing more gravel. So, yeah, there's, there's a big component of the sort of dredging process, which, you know, those Sydney and I can speak to in terms of what, what was occurring to prepare the dredging companies to actually mine a section of ground. Um, and there was a lot of, lot of uh, forethought put into, you know, what area they were going to dredge, um, how they went about finding those, areas and then how they went about preparing the ground to to dredge them. To see images of dredges from our collection, head over to our Flickr gallery for this episode. During the early years of the Klondike Gold Rush, more than 30,000 miners hand-mined for gold on the rich Placer Creeks. Much of the gold was simply too difficult and expensive to remove using hand mining techniques. While hand miners were working hard, promoters and investors were looking for long-term mining possibilities in the Yukon. One by one, individual miners sold out to large companies which installed dredges on the creeks. The conveyor buckets dug to bedrock and turned the valleys into mounds of gravel. As Sydney mentioned, Promotion of the Klondike fields brought in two large companies, the Canadian Klondike Mining Company in 1905 and the Yukon Gold Company a few years later. The dredges were a very efficient means of mining for gold. The dredge moved along on a pond of its own making, digging gold-bearing gravel in front, recovering the gold through the revolving screen washing plant, then depositing the gravel out of the stacker at the rear. A dredge pond could be 300 feet by as much as 500 feet wide, approximately 90 by 150 meters, depending on the width of the valley in which the dredge was working. The operating season was on average about 200 days, starting in late April or early May, and operating 24 hours a day until late November. So those two companies were active in the drainages, um, mining using dredges largely, and they were conducting exploration and determining uh, what ground was profitable to dredge. And uh, it wasn't until 1923 that the Yukon Consolidated Gold Corporation, which we refer to as YCGC, uh, they were formed. And so what they did is that they amalgamated these companies operating in the Klondike. So there was actually more than just those two, but those two were like the largest industrious, you know, companies. So YCGC came in and they bought out, um, yeah, obviously those two and other smaller operators like willing to sell. We're not exactly sure how many that encompassed, but they kind of, they really moved in in a big way and took over uh, the Klondike. And uh, they were active in the Klondike until 1966. 
And uh, the YCGC company itself ran up to 12 dredges in the Klondike, although not all those dredges were operating at the same time, but they had a pretty industrious mining operation. Uh, yeah, there was something like, uh, you know, there was uh, over like 700 people employed, you know, in, in the Dawson City area by the company for, you know, upwards of 40 years. Uh, in the Dawson City from 1923 onward really became a dredging town. You know, it was a mining town. And, uh, you know, it was... It was uh, Everybody, most people work for Yukon Consolidated Gold Corporation or the service sector that supported it, you know, and 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 a bit of of course government uh, officials in town and things like that. But YCGC really became the 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 job in town for for, for many decades in Dawson City. Yeah, one interesting part about YCGC is that it's extremely unique for Canadian mining history and the fact that it was the only large scale placer mining operation of its type in Canada. So it was. Yeah, like I said, the first operation that really, you know, purchased a lot of ground and really hit plaster mining in a large, substantial way. So, yeah, it's uh, it's pretty... It's pretty unique that way, for sure. Yeah. I think it's important for uh, listeners to understand sort of the difference between plaster mining and hard rock mining. Um, you know, plaster mining is, as I mentioned, I think, in the, in the intro bit there, is it's free gold that's weathered out of the bedrock. And so it's gold that was, you know, contained in veins in the rock, in the bedrock, uh, through processes of weathering. You release that gold, it collects in the stream valleys, whereas hard rock mining is mining gold that's still contained within the bedrock itself. And so they're really two different um, types of mining, and we're really talking about placer mining here, and and that free gold, um, you can you can to this day you can still stake a claim for placer right or what was called hard rock rights, which is called the quartz claim. And so you can uh, you can still stake you know claims to this day for either of those, but they they are separate. They're they're not uh, sort of held under the same uh, claiming process. The Yukon Consolidated Gold Corporation Limited (YCGC) was established in 1923 and operated in the Klondike Goldfields until 1966. YCGC was initiated and controlled by ANC Treadgold, an Englishman who spent most of his life trying to control the bulk of mining in the Klondike. He had financial backers, which included not only prominent Canadian businessmen, but also such international financiers as the Rothschilds and Guggenheims. From 1932 to 1966, they processed 205 million cubic yards of gravel and produced $58.8 million in gold, which is approximately 1.68 million ounces. In modern value, using a gold price of $2,000 Canadian an ounce, that would equate to $3.4 billion worth of gold. Like we mentioned in the intro to this episode, Sydney and Jeff recently came across hundreds of geological maps of the Klondike region at Library and Archives Canada. Since the information provided in the maps is extremely detailed and valuable to geologists, historians, and mining companies, they decided to travel to Ottawa to scan each of the maps and make the information available online. So far, the geologists have scanned hundreds of maps and thousands of pages of geological data including 12,000 exploration drill holes. 
The data in these maps from the 1920s will be useful to miners working in the Klondike region today. The Yukon Consolidated Gold Corporation was responsible for creating these maps. How did they collect the geological data to make them? Uh, so, yeah, within the company, there was a robust team of geologists and engineers, you know, laborers, drillers, cartographers, all these people on the ground. So once uh, they conducted drilling or they had dredge production data or any sort of geological information, they would come back to uh, their, their main camp in Dawson City, which was Bear Creek. And uh, they basically, yeah, I, I, we, it's an interesting stat because we don't know how many cartographers were employed, but they sure pumped out a ton of data, like the maps and the textual reports that the, this company was able to produce uh, is pretty mind-blowing. It's so, a very well-organized uh, you know, company in terms of their documentation and the mapping process of the, of, of the, you know, the data collection actually was was impressively well-organized and, uh, you know, really helped them succeed. How did these maps end up at Library and Archives Canada? Are some still out there? Uh, so, yeah, there's, there's still a large portion. As you can imagine, there's still families living in the Dawson and living and mining in the Dawson area. So we believe there's still a decent amount of these maps kind of floating around locally. But uh, the bulk of that data set, the YCGC data set, was transferred to... Uh, National Archives in, uh, in, in June 1970, and so um, there was a bit of shuffling there between the Yukon Archives and Whitehorse, but, uh, and it wasn't, and, and then the head office for YCGC was actually located in Vancouver, so it took a couple years, but um, they finally, by 1975, all the, the records for, well, I mean, sorry, the majority of the records for YCGC have been housed in uh, National Archives in Ottawa. So this is all following sort of the, the closure of the, you know, the suspension of sort of activities in the area by the company. Um, they stopped mining. Uh, they, they, you know, they had all this data from decades of work starting really from 1905 and, uh, and potentially earlier that they had consolidated. And so there was vaults really of, of data that has been has accumulated with, you know through the exploration process and the development process of these you know these dredging operations. So it's a huge amount of information that they didn't want to lose and so there was you know a, thankfully they you know got in touch with archives and, and, and coordinated, you know okay. the transfer of information. Like we mentioned the Yukon Consolidated Gold Corporation operated in the Klondike gold fields until 1966. Increasing material and labor costs into the early 1960s, combined with the shrinking gold reserve price, saw the company's profits significantly reduced. The last time a dredge turned in the Klondike was November 15, 1966. Um, to give you an example about that gold price, um, gold in 1923 was $21, and it slightly fluctuated to a high of $35 by 1966. So it didn't exactly, you know, increase with, yeah, it didn't match what the in increasing uh, labor and material costs, you know, would have been at that current date. So that, that, that gold price, for those that maybe don't follow that, is uh, substantially lower than our $1,900 Canadian, no, more than that. <laughs> 1900 U.S. 1900 U.S. gold price per ounce as yeah. we have today. Had had the gold price spiked as it did in 1980, 
you know, perhaps the company could have, uh, would have, uh, you know, maintained operations, but uh, by the late 60s, early 70s, there was, there was, there was still quite, quite a low gold price, so it couldn't, couldn't keep things going. What is the purpose of this digitization project that you're currently embarking on with LAC? Yeah, so we, we were really encouraged by the, by the modern mining industry to uh, review and look at the potential of these historic maps. I mean, most miners active today, particularly in Klondike, are aware, you know, they drive by these dredges, they see these dredge piles outside of town, you know, their great-grandfathers or grandfathers ran the dredges in those days. So people were really interested in that data. And uh, being, you know, housed in national in archives in Ottawa, it was a bit challenging for somebody to to undertake sort of reviewing and possibly scanning and all that process. So we, uh, yeah, we started. Uh, the first trip occurred in June 2013, and there's been five trips so far. And most recently, Jeff and I conducted a trip in December last year. And uh, yeah, we're still so basically we um, we're pulling any map that may contain any geological information so and and with these maps we can uh, directly kind of support and help the miners a determine what ground has been mined and uh, where potential mineable ground exists outside of areas that uh, haven't been mined yet so um, so really it's uh, I think the, one of the main focuses of the of the project was to sort of bring the data back to the miners and in some format. And so Sydney's uh, done a tremendous job in, you know, spending countless hours filing through sort of various maps and reports to to identify the valuable pieces of information uh, that then she requests scans of. And um, so then she's really bringing back these scans, these PDF scans of the map, which um, is she's handing off to uh, a digitization team here that uh, can help sort of capture that that key the, the key information on those maps that we can bring into to a uh, geographic information system a GIS platform for for easy sort of manipulation and viewing. So far, since their first trip in 2013, Sydney and Jeff have had over a thousand maps digitized and almost 300 textual documents as well. The textual documents could include reports associated with the maps or prospecting summaries. Today, an average of 160 active gold mining operations are operating throughout the territory, with the bulk of the operations present around Dawson City. These placer mines range in scale, with the average mine employing up to five people. Modern placer gold production is approximately 80,000 crude ounces per year. Is all of this data in the maps and textual documents still accurate and valuable today? Yes, it, uh, very much so. Uh, I particularly have done some GIS work where uh, digitized, or with the assistance of contractors, have digitized drilling drill holes, and I'm able to basically reconstruct, reconstruct gold distribution in a drainage. So... And uh, in doing that, you can basically target, you know, a drill hole if it drilled quite well and there was a lot of gold in that in that uh, sample. Um, I could go to, say, the miner mining there now, and uh, he will actually, you know, could outline a cut for that current year using the aid of that those drill holes, and it's proving to be incredibly accurate. So, I mean, despite its vintage, it's kind of neat, and uh, I think there's been enough 
miners now in the Klondike that are, you know, pretty impressed with the reliability and the accuracy and the sheer, like, volume of data that exists in this YCGC data. So basically, uh, we, we selected any maps or textual documents if they mentioned anything about gravel or gold or claims, dredges, you know, mock shafts, exploration, sort of anything that might uh, help us today. And uh, those maps, I mean, they, yeah, they, they can be anything from drill maps to dredge maps as to where the dredge actually went. Um, you have stripping, thawing, so the process that occurred prior to when the dredge, you know, became active in a drainage. They had to strip off the overburden because it was too deep for them to reach the bedrock contact without doing so. Uh, other maps are simply like the baselines, like the original claims where they laid, where they, uh, you know, what, what area they encompassed. Um, you have uh, maps about historic ditches and even historic workings pre-1923 of YCGC maps. So they did a really good job about capturing maps pretty much about, you know, the landscape. They, I mean, they, they mapped even landscape, like features, um, the, yeah. the, the cartography work is fa is fantastic, and it. Uh, I have to say, when I was uh, there with Sydney last December, looking at some of these maps, I was uh, I, I kept getting very distracted by the craftsmanship into the, that the cartographers were employing in these maps. They, they're just just really really pleasing to the eye. Um, there's a lot of artistic talent that obviously went into these. Into the, into the map making itself, and um, and there's some real gems of information contained within many of them. I mean, there's the obvious information that uh, Sydney's mentioned, and then there's all sorts of other things too that that are important to recognize, like where there was cabin locations on some of the more outlying creeks. A cabin location can indicate uh, where somebody was focused on working, and perhaps where you know the the you know a better gold showing might might occur. One thing that when you walk around in the hills in the Klondike today, um, lots you know, miners generally are, are very aware that there's you know old timer there was old timer activity. They call everything the old timer activity. These are the old prospectors that were up in the hills thinking shafts and all these sorts of things. And but there's really very little documentation about what that old timer activity really looked like. So we're always trying to sort of piece together. Um, where that activity occurred, what was happening, where people were located, because if you can sort of understand where the old timers were, you might be able to stumble across uh, a discovery. And there are you know, bits and pieces of information in some of these old maps that YCGC uh, constructed that, that do contain, uh, you know, a bit of information about some of the work that was occurring prior to the dredging. How is the digitization being funded? Which organizations are involved in this project? Jeff tells us. So we went after, uh, we needed some support from the federal government to help with, uh, with the project, and we have had excellent support from the Canadian Northern Economic Development Agency, CANNOR. Uh, there was a program called, uh, the acronym was SIGNED, that's Strategic Investment, Investments in Northern Economic Development. We used SIGNED for quite a few years to help with uh, travel and digitizing costs. Uh, to, uh, for this project, it's a little bit, um, you know, this project was a little bit outside of what we were used to doing at the Yukon Geological Survey. Um, it was a bit unique. Um, it, it didn't necessarily have the internal funds to, to proceed with it, so uh, 
uh, we're very thankful to Ken Nor for stepping up and being a, a strong partner through this. Um, it certainly helped uh, the industry up here. It uh, really benefited, I think, historians as well. And um, yeah, they've uh, so Yukon between the Yukon government, uh, you know, and you know, paying uh, Sydney's salary and, and, and mine to, to to work on this project. Uh, is Ken Nor has been a has been a very strong partner. We asked both Jeff and Sydney why they think it's important to make this data available online to the public. Yeah, I mean, uh, particularly, I mean, for the for the modern mining industry, I mean, this is uh, it's it's basically free exploration for them. Uh, it really, you know, can help direct a lot of those miners active in the prominent Klondike drainages. Uh, that aside, you know, it, it, it's very neat for us to work with that data, so geologically we can, you know, put together sufficient uh, geology sort of, you know, distribution, so like look at the gravel thickness and stuff like that, which is interesting uh, on our end. Um, it's, it's I'm modeling the gold uh, uh, distribution as well. I mean, it's, it's quite interesting to understand sort of how the gold deposits were, were you know, basically the distribution of these gold deposits in these valleys prior to mining. And now we can reconstruct that with uh, with this drill hole information, and that that in turn can help you understand sort of you know what gold distributions might look in valleys that are you know are online today in in this particular area. Yeah, and it also helps us you know determine some uh, additional exploration targets. Like if we see some uh, really high gold grades in a drainage for some particular reason, we can look at you know maybe what the tributary influence might be to that, and so. Yeah, there's definitely step-out exploration. Uh, another interesting, I mean, uh, these maps also includes like the historic pipelines and old work uh, town sites and whatnot. So, I mean, from a historian part of the sense, uh, it's pretty neat for, for people to, you know, reconstruct where old town sites were. And um, aside from that, I mean, also, I think the value is for Yukoners to know how much mining has occurred and, you know, how extensive and how impressive an operation like YCGC was. And just as Jeff mentioned, like, the sheer, like, beauty of these maps, like, I have them printed on my walls at home. <laughs> They're just, like, beautiful works of art. So I think the value is that, like, you know, it can be really appreciated and valued by a lot of, you know, a lot That's of different great. industries and a lot of people, and I mean, not just Yukoners, but... I think uh, when the listeners maybe dive into what we have available, they might be pretty impressed with what you find. To view a sample of some of these amazing maps, head over to our Flickr page. You'll find the link in the show notes on the podcast page for this episode. To see all of the digitized maps, drill holes, claim boundaries, and more, all linked up to an interactive web map, head over to the Yukon Geological Survey website. We'll include a link in the show notes as well to make it easier for you. Any final thoughts, Jeff? You know, I think it's uh, it's, it's important for the listeners to understand that, you know, Yukon is a gold mining district in the country. It's one of our few sort of resource industries, um, natural resource industries that we have up here. And so this is a, it's a pretty important part of the history as well. Um, obviously, it's become uh, tourism is has become a big part of sort of the Klondike now in in you know in more recent years, and uh, but uh, gold mining is still sort of the bread and butter of uh, of sort of the resource industry uh, in, in many places of rural Yukon. It's important to to also just reiterate. 
we've made as a result of of using this historic data. Um, there's been discoveries made, um, you know, outside the areas that were dredged that were explored by the drilling in those early days, and we're seeing, you know, more and more of our clients sort of pick up the information and use it in their, you know, analysis of their ground and their and their claims, and they're finding more resources as a result of of the preservation of this material archive. If you'd like to learn more about Yukon geological maps here at LAC, please visit us online at bac-lac.gc.ca. On the episode page for this podcast, you'll find a number of related links, including our Flickr album, which highlights a selection of maps and photos from our collection. Thank you for being with us. I'm Jose Arnold, your host. You've been listening to Discover Library and Archives Canada, where Canadian history, literature, and culture await you. A special thank you to our guests today, Sydney Van Loon and Jeff Bond. Special thanks also to Isabelle Larocque and Kylie Van Avery for their contributions to this episode. This episode was produced and engineered by David Knox. If you liked this episode, you're invited to subscribe to the podcast. You can do it through the RSS feed located on our website, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you're interested in listening to the French equivalent of our podcast, you can find French-language versions of all of our episodes on our website, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. Simply search for Découvrez Bibliothèque et Archives Canada. For more information on our podcasts, or if you have questions, comments, or suggestions, please visit us at bac-lac.gc.ca slash podcasts. Mm-hmm.